Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by the inspirational Alisa De Dominici. Alisa is VP Global Legal and ENC Operations at Ramini Street, and as you'll hear, is an incredibly experienced leader with a broad range of experience and huge responsibility in her role. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've had the pleasure of meeting a number of times and chatting over the years, but I was always curious to learn more about your story. And firstly, where did you grow up? I grew up in a big city, a little bit outside of Boston, actually right in the middle of Boston, Massachusetts and the witch city of Salem, Massachusetts. Salem's obviously an iconic place. We're recording Soon after Halloween, it must be a fun time of year in that part of the world. Yeah. Insane. It's the Mecca of, for Halloween. <laughs> yeah. And how, how would you have described yourself as a kid? I would say I was a bit of a wallflower and a bit of a sponge. So I'm, I'm very curious by nature. I like to sit and observe people rather than to be the focus of attention. I've always been interested in surrounding myself with people that are opinionated, thoughtful, interesting. So yeah, more of a listener than a than a talker. And then what was the kind of path you took after school? What were your first steps? Did you go straight to college? Did you go, did you enter the working world? Oh my gosh. So I did the exact opposite of what anybody would want to do after getting out of high school. So no, I did not go right to college. I, I, I um, My first job was as a secretary in a technology company. Mm-hmm. And it really taught me to be efficient, I mm-hmm. guess, in that role and detail oriented. And I was used to people relying on me because secretaries and companies, you know, are the go-to mm-hmm. person for everything. Mm-hmm. And then in that role, my manager said, this is Italy. So unless you go back to school, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I think you're great, but where are you going to go next? You need a college degree. So I worked my way through night school mm-hmm. at Northeastern University in their undergrad. And I received a degree in management information systems. I don't even know if that still exists with a minor in finance because mm-hmm. obviously I was involved in business. And once I got my degree, I went to work for, you know, Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. And I actually programmed for a number of years in COBOL. And I'm probably dating myself. I don't know if anybody does that. (laughs) And then from there, I I decided that technology, like a pure developer path, was not for me. I'm a little bit too much of a people person. Not that they're not people, people. So I went back to school for an MBA at night at Northeastern because it was, you know, close to where I worked and I received my MBA. And do you think kind of having that real world experience in the workplace, learning maybe through osmosis in that initial role, gave you a different kind of drive in terms of pursuing education and taking it more seriously, getting more out of it, whether it was your your initial degree that you did or subsequently the MBA, because you're you're making big sacrifices, right? In terms of your personal time, it's very hard to juggle the two, I imagine, working full-time and, and studying. Absolutely. And I, I completely agree with you. I did take it more seriously. I have to say, if somebody else paid for my degree and that's all I was doing, I probably wouldn't have done as well. 
time management was key. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I became very good at that. And I was a bit of a no nonsense. I didn't have any time for anything mm-hmm. else or much else except for working and then the degree. And what was interesting is what you just said, a lot of the concepts that you learn in school, you can then take and apply to the real world. So I thought it was actually really good. Mm-hmm. It's just it was the longest way possible to get your degrees. But I probably wouldn't have done it different. For me, it was a good fit because I'm very tactical. I need to to see things in action in order for it to really, truly resonate with me. Like I said, you know, any finance classes, when we talked about budgeting, I immediately could take that back to my work. It's a topic that's come up a bunch of times on on the podcast, specifically anyone who kind of studied law and the kind of very academic approach that it certainly existed when I was in law school that bore no relationship to actually practicing law, that you were completely <laughs> ill-equipped for that and you had to learn on the job. And even when we started Bright Flag, I remember I, I like furiously was reading books about how to scale a technology business and in each functional area, best practices. And we probably still made a bunch of mistakes because you're gonna have to live, live, live through the growing pains and the different issues and 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 learn yourself. It's such a powerful way to take what you're you're learning and then being applying apply it in real time. And what were the kind of next steps career-wise once you you did the MBA? What what, what was next? Well, I went to work for the administrative office of the trial court, which basically oversees all of the trial courts in the state of Massachusetts. So I worked there's a chief justice in an administrative office responsible. And I thought that was quite interesting. What a unique opportunity. It is a state government job. I really liked it. I had an opportunity to go behind the scenes in courts. I learned about the role of the clerk magistrate and the prosecutor and defenders and land court and probate. And I just had a wide variety of um, exposure. And I was um, responsible for technology when Mm -hmm. I got there, project management mostly. And they were looking at new docketing systems, case management systems, things like that. I liked it because it was a lot of contact with lawyers and judges and clerks and all the behind the scenes, but it's not the most progressive environment. You know, any kind of change was hard. So what I what I learned there is that, you, have you ever heard that saying, you know, build it and they will come? Well, yes. that doesn't happen. <laughs> That's the one lesson I learned working with state government. They will not come. And not only will they not come, they will try to knock it down before it's even built. So during that phase of my life, I learned a lot about change management and understanding who your stakeholders are and some of the reasons behind why you shouldn't do something. And I got really good at just having conversations with people, trying to understand their perspective and then talk with them about why this change is good and and needed most of all. During that time, because I was working with lawyers, judges and clerks, I felt like it was important to talk their talk, so to speak, and like it or not, within the legal industry, if you hold a JD or a legal degree, you're somehow equal to them, even though you have no experience whatsoever. So I went back to school and I decided to go to law school. So I did that at night during that time. And it did help, actually. I learned a lot about the administrative processes and functions and the purpose of everything. And it was it was quite helpful. 
There's so much in what you said there. The point around your learnings in change management and you're working in an environment that is just structurally resistant to change, presumably because just of how the the court system is structured and regulations that exist around that and court procedures because of the profile of the people that you're dealing with, both on the kind of people working in the public sector and then also the kind of lawyer skill set where they they are unfamiliar they haven't come up with an understanding of technology and process improvement and efficiency it's it's just not the lens through which historically they saw the world so i'm sure that that sort of like extreme scenario really stood to you in maybe less less difficult scenarios subsequently where you have were trying to drive change and innovation and and i know your next step was then to join the boston consulting group presumably that was a very different culture and experience polar opposite which was a better fit for me mm-hmm. so at boston consulting group they focus more on process improvement and diversity collaboration transformation you know cutting edge and respectful of opinions. And so I was there for 16 some odd years. And I was, you know, worked my way up from a business analyst all the way up to a, you know, a global manager there. I was responsible for rolling out enterprise-wide systems, huge change management, because we were in um, 80 countries, but it was a very thin footprint. So you might have, you know, a sprinkling of people in Russia, sprinkling of people in China, you know, some in Singapore and some in the United States. But, you know, because the culture is up or out, meaning that you you grow or you just leave. I mean, and that's generally accepted that everybody was completely open to change and completely working together. Um, it was a very consensus driven environment. So there I honed in on my stakeholder skills, communication skills, mm-hmm. project management skills. I mean, it's all I did over and over again. And something that always jumps out at me working with people who train and learn those best practices from the ground up at a reasonably early stage in their career they really stick with you that you can you can kind of see it a mile away and presumably there's just principles approaches that that you learn there that that were hugely beneficial in subsequent roles right it becomes in part of your dna you can't help yourself right and the thing we were chatting briefly before we started recording, and you very modestly were saying, well, there was no kind of master plan in terms of how you ended up in legal operations. But there's, as we talk through your journey, there's so much of the ingredients to make somebody an incredibly effective legal ops leader, as, as, as I know you are from working closely with you. And you had that kind of initial early experience in in a large enterprise in Liberty Mutual. You gained a really good understanding of the, the court system of litigation, of change management in the legal space firsthand. And litigation is obviously a key driver for most legal departments, legal, legal budget and spend. You then had that consulting experience, as you said, just becoming a real expert in change management and, and process improvement. You then went and worked on the, the law firm side, like near, almost the final piece of the puzzle. How did that come about? So after 16 years at BCG, I felt like it was time just to prove myself in another environment. So because I had the legal background and IT background and business background, a lot of people had said to me, you know, you'd be perfect as an office administrator or some other, you know, back office role in a law firm. You should really Mm -hmm. think about it. 
And so an opportunity came from Wilmer Hale in Boston, and that's a very old institutional law firm in Boston, big. So I grabbed at it, and um, I worked in the IT department for the CIO, and I was responsible for my internal clients were finance, because I had that financial systems background and the finance background, as well as the administrative operations function. So people responsible for the facilities and just the day-to-day of the offices. So I worked closely with the chief administrative officer, the chief financial officer, and the chief information officer to make sure that the business functions were, needs were being met with technology solutions or process improvement. So, I mean, it was a perfect sweet spot for me, I thought. And I really, I was there for about five years. I really enjoyed the work. But I think that law firms in general are just not as collaborative Mm -hmm. as like a BCG would be. And so I was craving that more collaborative, fast paced environment, which is why Mm -hmm. I decided to leave eventually. And like the observation from my own career and maybe from many in-house lawyers who've spoken on the podcast in the past is there's a real distinction in, in a law firm the lawyers are the business, the equity partners are the, they're the revenue generators and then kind of technology, efficiency, finance, all of these things are, are maybe less of a point of focus because you have people in this equity partnership role where they may take a short time horizon view on the business where they're going to retire within a decade and they're not as forward looking or, or taking as long a term view in terms of how do we evolve how do we stay on top of trends build the technology that we need for the next 20 years was that part of the kind of the difference you experienced there versus a boston consulting group absolutely and then coupled with what you just said on or on top of that you have managing partners who are those equity partners Mm -hmm. so it they're managing for their own best interest, which I understand, yeah. you know, but it's, yeah, it, it was a larger divide between the back office and the revenue generators than there was at BCG. It was a much closer, tighter group. I mean, I think that if, if I went back to a law firm, if there was one that had a CEO, for example, that could represent the, mm. the back office part, I think that that would be a, a better environment overall. Yeah, it's it's almost struck me that like you almost need that role to have have an equity stake in the business for it to truly drive those things in a meaningful way. But my experience of it is each individual equity partner almost sees themselves as the CEO. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's part of it. You then, as we we touched on briefly, have emerged as a, a leader, a legal ops leader. You joined Ramini Street. Can you tell us about the scope of of the role and? I've had the pleasure of, of of knowing the team there for many years, like an organization, I think that has kind of innovation in its DNA and, and it, in the DNA of the legal function. What attracted you to the role of what's the real scope of it for you, from your perspective that made it exciting? I was on LinkedIn, actually, and I saw the role posted by the then chief legal mm-hmm. officer and it had never been filled before. So it was a new role. The CLO wasn't exactly convinced that he needed one. Um, And at the time, it was a chief of staff combined with the VP operation role. However, again, it was one of those situations where it had all the skill set that or it had all the requirements that I, you know, that I had, which was technology, process improvement and legal. So I applied for the role in, uh, sorry, and then it also was working for a technology company. And I know just in and of itself, a technology company is always fast paced, collaborative, you know, keeping up. And that is the environment that I really feel like I thrive in. 
So I applied for the job and ended up getting it. And at first it was just, you know, learning as much as I can about the business, not really the legal aspect, but just the business that we're supporting. Um, And then the chief legal officer left after six months. And I don't think it was something I said. I think he was planning on leaving anyway. (laughs) So I dropped the chief of staff title and then became just the VP. And the things that I focus on are process, people, and technology. And those are the things that I've always focused on from the beginning, even, you know, from the days of the secretary, mm-hmm. I'm all, you know, looking for a new copier, looking for a new, you know, fax machine, or looking how to best organize the mail, or whatever it is, it's always comes down to those three things. So I'm responsible for the, you know, budgeting and forecasting, for the retention and hiring, also for making sure that we have the right support model in place, also responsible for all the technology ideas as well as asks. And I say that because you can't really sit back and wait for the lawyers to say, hey, I need, you know, I need AI or I need something to replace my paralegal or Mm -hmm. to replace my attorney. So legal ops is really responsible for staying on top of what's out there in the industry. I'm also responsible for vendor management across the board, outside spend, like you talked about, which comes under budgeting and forecasting. So any operational and administrative aspect and what I love about it is the diversity of responsibilities. Every day I come, I sit at my desk, and I'm like, what now? Mm-hmm. But I love that. And there's some people that don't like that, that they like the routine. So I would say if you like routine, this probably isn't the role for you. And I'm not suggesting that every day is a is a fire, you know, putting out a fire. It's just an interesting challenge day mm-hmm. after day. Some days are just easy and you don't have one, but most days there's something going on in the business. So I like that. And I feel like it's been a good fit for me here. Um, A lot of cross-functional collaboration. So when I first started at, well, when the CLO left, I was left standing there. And so the first thing I had to do was to reach out to my business partners and reintroduce myself and explain, you know, just because the CLO left doesn't mean there's no legal department. You know, we're here. This is my role. This is what I'm here for you to do. I just had a call today with somebody in EMEA who just started. I had the same conversation. You know, if there's anything at all, because maybe you're not getting the answer you want, or you're getting bounced between two different legal teams, or you don't know where to go to, you know, reach out to me or a member of my team. I just don't want you spending a lot of time or anxiety on that. So, We're also arbitrators, coordinators, facilitators. What jumps out at me is, to some extent, you came in with a huge amount of really relevant domain experience, but you came in into the leadership role with somewhat of a fresh perspective and with very much, it sounds like a business-orientated mindset where you weren't as kind of narrowly focused of, oh, I need to make sure just e-billing is working and a CLM is working and that the the trains are running on time. It's more like, what does the business need? I'm using you as the conduit to make sure that that's happening. That's really, really interesting because it's it's maybe a slightly different lens in terms of how to approach the legal ops role. And, And were there any kind of specific lessons from the prior experience at Boston Group that you found really helped in those kind of early days, kind of building those relationships, setting up things in the way that you wanted them to work? 
Yes, and I hope it's okay to quote an ex-BCGer. Hugh Simons was the CEO at the time when I was at BCG for a little while, and he used to start some of our meetings by saying, step into that white space mm -hmm. and basically be the person that mm -hmm. you feel that you should be, that you want to be, and eventually it will come. And if you see a gap, you know, step into it, don't walk away. Mm -hmm. And that always resonated with me. Mm -hmm. So when I came to Ramini Street, that's what I did. So when we had a gap, our CLO left, I stepped into his space, basically. I mean, I wasn't thinking I was the next CLO. I didn't want to be, but I, I tried to fill as many gaps and voids that he left behind that I could fill. Mm. So that's why my first thing was to reach out to all the stakeholders mm. and, and understand what works, what doesn't work. Now that the CLO is gone, if there's something that he was doing that was driving you crazy, let's change it. This is a great opportunity to do that. So I would say from BCG that stepping into the white space mm -hmm. was a very good um, back experience that mm -hmm. I leveraged here. Project management, all the skills from project management are, I would say, 80% of my role today. Mm -hmm. So people think of project management sometimes as scheduling meetings, taking mm -hmm. notes, making sure people doing what they're supposed to be doing. I call that more of like a project coordinator or a junior project manager, a really skilled, experienced project manager takes over all aspects of the project and they're accountable for it. And that means change management, stakeholder analysis, budgeting and forecasting, transitioning to operations. So just because you have a good idea, you have to make sure that there's somebody that's going to, you know, make it happen for as indefinitely until there's another change. Those are all skills that are really good to have. So I would recommend if there's anybody interested in legal operations at any level, then look on YouTube, um, watch some videos. There's some really good books out there. Um, Running Legal Like a Business has a, um, a few chapters on project management. Mm -hmm. um, I would get up to speed on that because there's so many elements of project management that are helpful in this type of role. It's such a underrated skill set. I, I, in my career, even as a lawyer, I found when I was kind of managing large M&A transactions, a lot of it was less about the domain knowledge of negotiating the, the share purchase agreement, more about corralling both sides of the transaction, all of your internal stakeholders, the client to, to get to the desired outcome. As you say, that involves change management. It involves really effective collaboration and calls on a bunch of different skills. It isn't just the kind of ensuring the meetings are being scheduled and the notes are taken. And just to kind of come back to that point about the CLO left, what is your reporting like? I report to the CEO. I suspect you may be the only person, one of the only people in the world in that leadership role in legal ops where that is the case. And have you have you found anybody else who's kind of operating as the top of the tree in that way and taking, as you said, full ownership for budget, full ownership for that stakeholder management? It's funny you say that. I just assumed everybody else was doing the same thing. I don't know. I haven't asked. I, I just feel like it's such a it's such a wide scope of a role. Some people report into an attorney. Some people report into the CLO. I guess it depends on the size of the company. We're yeah, yeah. a pretty big company, so it is quite unusual that I report into the CEO. But again, you got to step into that space yeah. and just don't don't look back. Well, that's really inspiring, and I'm sure our audience would be interested to understand. What does the CEO look for from you? He cares about vision. 
making sure that not only are we solving for the short term, but the long term to scale. He cares about budget, obviously. <laughs> That's a huge positive. So cost savings, process efficiency is another one. And we have a few initiatives underway that are addressing each of those. And so he also looks for me to deal with the day-to-day issues. But then if there's something important or critical that he needs to know about that, you know, I make sure that he's aware of it. And in terms of communication of data to your CEO, because you're obviously coming at at that relationship from a different perspective than a GC or CLO might, where they're they're not as comfortable with technology or data or, or the kind of financial components of the role. What does that dynamic look like in terms of how you're communicating with them? Every week we have a legal huddle and it's about a 45 minute call and all the leaders and legal myself are on that call and we just give them an update on what's going on this week. You know, is there any litigation matters to talk about or are we way over budget? So that's just like a stand up, you know, weekly meeting. On top of that, we're just getting ready to launch a um, a dashboard that actually we use Brightflag for. So thank you for that to get all of the data out of. And it will show him by practice, not only how are we doing against budget, but we've also identified other metrics like partner utilization. Are we being really smart about who we're using in those law firms? as well as you know how many matters are currently active, what's our timekeeper rates. I mean, there's a lot of information on that dashboard. I think we've narrowed it down to about five different metrics. And so what we're gonna do is send it to them on a quarterly basis, as well as the regional leaders. So everybody's on the same page. I'm a huge fan of transparency. And I'm noticing that even though we haven't sent our first one out yet, but we're getting ready to, it's already changing behavior internally for good. And I might drill in on that a little bit. So I'm a big believer in this internally in Bright Flag, what I see with our customers every day. Once you shine a light on something and you give that visibility and transparency and you start to track a particular metric, it's human nature. It has a cascading impact on getting you to your desired outcome once that visibility exists. So what are the kind of behavior changes you're seeing now that 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 visibility exists? Sure. So people are more conscious about their bills. So for example, when I started, we had just implemented Bright Flag. I wasn't involved with the implementation and I was just seeing invoices just go through. It just seemed like our invoice approval workflow. You know, what's the big deal? So after I got more comfortable, the CLO left and it was now my responsibility. I took a further look and I and I learned more about Bright Flag. I know this sounds like a plug for Bright Flag, but it's not. But I learned more about the system and how the flags work and how, um, you know, and how the OCR checking is done and the line items and all of that. And I started just reporting on, okay, so this is the dollar amount our Bright Flag solution identified as potential savings. And here's the amount that was actually realized. I just reported it. No, you know, no excuses. And then suddenly people noticed that I was paying attention to that metric. And then they started to take advantage of those flags. Now, I had to remind people, keep in mind, those flags come from our outside council guidelines. They're things that we or that you established. So don't be shy if something violates the outside council guidelines. You should be, you know, flagging it and not paying for it. So we moved from a just let everything go through in Bright Flag to more of a conscious review of the bills that led to a savings because people are taking more advantage of those flags. 
What strikes me as well is there was that focus that you brought and that visibility you brought, but there was presumably also that alignment where you're reporting directly to the CEO. The CEO cares about efficiency and cost control. And people understand that a light is now being shone on this. And it's really impressive what you have achieved. I'm curious because this has been such an inspiring conversation. I do want to be respectful of your time. You're an incredibly modest person, but you have achieved so much. You've worked clearly incredibly hard. Is there any advice you'd give to somebody who's maybe listening, who's in a junior ops role or is considering moving into the legal ops space? Is there any kind of advice you'd give them in terms of something to bear in mind or focus on if they want to get to where you are now? Yeah, I would say definitely, I hate to harp on it, but definitely, you know, step into that white space. So um, do whatever you can to help. It's the small wins that really make a difference versus this, the big accomplishments. Mm-hmm. So I would look for any opportunity to volunteer, work in your magic time, do whatever you have to do to take on some small activities. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'll even just find a contract for somebody, right? Instead of giving it to somebody else to find the contract, be the person that's known for getting things done. Mm -hmm. And then you'll start to build onto that more and more. You won't get stuck with those small tasks. A lot of people feel that way. Instead, what will happen is you'll just grow and grow and you'll take on more and more responsibility and you will become more confident, which I think is equally as important. I think a lot of people that come into a legal ops role, they're not sure, it's undefined, I don't know what to do. They lack that confidence. Mm -hmm. So if you have experience by doing these small activities that when you get into a legal operations role, you'll you'll do well because you'll know who you are and what you've, you know, and can leverage what you've done in the past and have that confidence. That's such great advice. I think it was Steve Jobs said something like, go play in traffic. And it's kind of, yeah, don't don't kind of sit yeah. back and wait to, to be asked to do something. Uh, I think that that is uh, a surefire way to progress and to learn and, and challenge yourself. And it's been such an incredible conversation. Always so much fun catching up with you and, and, and so inspiring. Final question from me, unrelated to the world of legal and legal ops. What do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Oh, boy, I love music. And I loved staying up with the new music. I have a 20-year-old daughter who keeps me pretty informed on the, the music scene. So I like going to concerts. I love to travel. Yeah, I'm just spending time with the family. They'll keep you young. I'm, I'm at the kind of frozen music stage with our three, three and four-year-olds. <laughs> looking forward to their teenage years. When, yeah, we're getting, getting into some more interesting music. But uh, as it says, Everett, it's so much fun catching up. Oh, and thank thanks, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by BrightFlag, an AI-powered e-billing and matter management platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically.